Welcome to episode 2 of Shake the Sword. If you listen to our first episode, then you'll know who this is. Yep, that's multilingual Shitsonga Swahili English star Shoma Josie. If you're still wondering why she's our musical introduction to a discussion about Shakespeare in East Africa, you really need to listen to part one of Kiswahili Shakespeare's. And if you're wondering who I am, I'm Chris Thurman, the director of the Tsikinia Shaka Center at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. The Tsikinia Shaka Center, or TCC for short, supports research and practice at the intersection of Shakespeare, transnationalism, and multilingualism. In this season of Shake the Sword, we're focusing on adaptations and translations of Shakespeare from across the African continent. Our second episode is part two of Kiswahili Shakespeare's. Let's pick up where we left off, in my conversation with independent Kenyan lexicographer, scholar, and Swahili language activist Kimani Njogu, and TCC affiliate Serena Talento, who teaches Swahili and translation studies at the University of Bayreuth. You'll recall that in part one, we discussed the Shakespeare translations of Mwalimu Julius Nyerere, the first president of independent Tanzania, and a poet and philosopher besides. So my first question follows on from that discussion. You may need to adjust your sound slightly. Subsequent translators would have the shadow of Nyerere perhaps hanging over them and might want to challenge that or escape it. But when you have this kind of seminal political figure whom you might not want to undermine or challenge for his political presence or what he represents or symbolizes, that might be different to what one might want to do as a subsequent translator in going further than him or better than him or differently to him in your own translation. So maybe we can keep Nyerere in mind, mm -hmm. but think about, about those who followed Serena, you're nodding your head. Do you have some thoughts on translation of Shakespeare into Kiswahili after Nyerere? Yeah, I would say that there are firstly some translations into uh, Swahili of Shakespeare contemporary to Nyerere, more or less. Usually when we talk about Shakespeare and Swahili, we talk about Nyerere, but I think that another political and literary figure that must be taken into consideration is Samuel Mushi. He was the promoter for Swahili during uh, Nyerere's era, for, at, at the very beginning of Nyerere's era. And he was, as Nyerere was, also a lover of poetry. And he translated in 1968 Macbeth. And then 1969, which is the same year in which Nyerere released the second translation of Julius Caesar and the Merchant of Venice, Mushi translated uh, The Tempest. What is interesting in um, Mushi's translation, which of course are following in the footsteps of Nyerere translation, and let me also add that following in the footsteps of someone in the translation field in that era was extremely important because if you think about the complicity between the political field and the literary field, so how, how to a great extent political figures were also literary figures and were also translators. So getting involved into translation in, at that time, it was kind of a duty of the intellectual patriots who wanted to build the nation 
not only with tangible means, but also with the intellectual effort. And what Mushi was doing, following in Nyerere's footsteps and following him in deciding to, well, introduce or to popularize uh, blank verse. So, um, and this will um, this will open up afterwards, I think, also with Professor Kimani, a big debate about um, free verse and uh, blank verse in Swahili poetry, because this was a rupture. This was kind of heretical break in the history of Swahili literature, which, which was very uh, faithful to the uh, prosodic verse. Swahili classical poetry was very complex in its prosody, and so deviating from these rules was indeed, um, as I would say, a heretical break. And this is what Nyerere did, also Mushi. Um, and I think this is very much important in when we talk about the literary project, apart from the political project, because this also, this deliberate uh, decision to popularize a verse form, which was considered awkward or not typical for Swahili poetry was also related to the project of enlarging the possibilities of uh, the national literature. Something to mention here also is that um, part of the reason why Nyerere's translations were very popular was because they were published by Oxford, Oxford University Press based in Kenya. And Mushi's translations were published by Tanzania Publishing House in Dar es Salaam. Um, and given the uh, fact that Oxford University Press is very strong in terms of marketing and so on, they were, he, their books were able to enter into the educational system uh, and therefore, Nyerere's translations are more known mm -hmm. than Mushi's uh, translations. Although in terms of the strategy that both adopted, in terms of retaining uh, the meter, you know, um, the blank verse, there was some criticism that uh, Nyerere, in his translation, undermined uh, Kiswahili poetry uh, because he refused to... Uh, insert the rhyme, mm. uh, which is a required style in Kiswahili prosodic uh, poetry, you know, and, and, and therefore that in, in his translation undermines that. But of course, for many of us, I think that it was really to say that Kiswahili poetry has many thrusts. Um, you have the thrust which is prosodic in terms of its orientation, uh, the poetry that was received uh, from the 16th century onwards, uh, but also uh, opening up possibilities for blank verse and free verse and, and so on. And in fact, other writers, uh, Kezile Habi, mm -hmm. um, Ibrahim Hussein in Chembe Chamoyo, mm -hmm. uh, and other writers saying, look, we need to free Kiswahili poetry from the constraints of, of, of prosody mm -hmm. to allow it to, to dance freely. If poetry itself is inspired by music, if you look at Kiswahili traditional music, most of it actually breaks away from the prosody uh, that we see in written poetry. 
Uh, and therefore, by freeing um, through translation Kiswahili poetry, it's almost like going back to music. And, and I think that Nyerere uh, did open this possibility in his translations. At this point, the conversation turns towards the contemporary, with Kimani and Jogu connecting Julius Nyerere's translations to the work of actor and playwright Muraya Joshua Ogutu, who translated and adapted The Merry Wives of Windsor for a Kenyan-Tanzanian collaboration in 2012. You'll recall that in part one, we listened to a snippet from a performance at the Globe to Globe Festival. Let's revisit that scene with Ogutu as Mistress Quickly and Mrisho Mpoto as Falstaff before we return to the conversation. <laughs> I talked with Ogutu. He actually read Nyerere's translations before doing the translation of Mary Wives of Windsor. Mm. So, because my, I was very interested in knowing, you know, how he did it. And he was like, you know, he was surprised by the, the fidelity of Nyerere's translation. But for Ogutu, uh, it was more free. You know, he, he, his translation is much more freer, more targeted at, um, at the stage and uh, the physicality of, of acting. And, and of course, being aware of uh, the audiences, knowing that this the Shakespeare would act, Shakespeare would be performed in the UK, uh, and therefore uh, most likely the audiences will not have access to to Kiswahili. Uh, and also something because you know you you asked uh, about um, about language. I I was very interested in knowing uh, how the translation. Uh, differed in terms of language from Nyerere's translation. And he, he basically said, look, I mean, we try to use as much as possible Kenyan Kiswahili, not Tanzanian Kiswahili, so that there was very deliberate uh, incorporation of uh, a dialectical variation, uh, which is Kenyan in a sense, uh, more flexible uh, in terms of grammar, more flexible in terms of terminology, uh, and so on. Uh, and even with elements of code switching where necessary, and even adaptation, that adaptability of Shakespeare into Kiswahili was very, very important. In fact, what is also interesting is that in the case of Kenya, uh, we have a Windsor Hotel, you know, which is one of the big hotels in Kenya, owned by a politician, and therefore the main character in the translation is actually a politician, and there's all this cross-referencing to, to the Windsor Hotel, which all of us know about. Um, therefore, I, I think that in, in this more recent translation, it is to do more of um, a transcreation, you know, other than uh, a translation uh, that requires fidelity, 
and loyalty to the original. It feels like we have a jump there, don't we? From, uh, well, the perception would be a, a jump from the 1960s and then, a, and then a gap. And then we have, you know, globe to globe. And, and I think in so many cases, part of the reason why scholars and theatre makers and translators have felt a bit uncomfortable about the prominence, the popularity, the reception of the Globe to Globe Festival, mm-hmm. despite its great success and despite, despite the way in which it promoted Shakespeare and translation into different languages, is that it creates the perception that nothing has been happening for the decades prior mm-hmm. to that. Is, is that accurate when it comes to Shakespeare and Kiswahili? Had there been a tailing off of translation activity in the decades following the, the kind of great boom in the 1960s? Well, after, after Moshe's translation, we still have uh, some translations always in the seven, in, during the 70s. Um, and we have actually two, we could say, retranslations of um, Macbeth and The Merchant of Venice done in 1970, 1971 by uh, Francis Warwick who was uh, a British citizen working during British rule. After his services were terminated, he will, he became a teacher in a high school, girls' high school. And he retranslated, well, I say retranslated because there were already uh, two, the, the translations by uh, Nyerere and Mushi. He translated, again, uh, The Merchant and Macbeth in a very particular way, very different from how Mushi and Nyerere translated their, uh, the Shakespearean texts since Warwick um, completely transforms or has uh, Professor Kimani has said, transcreates uh, the Shakespearean texts that are completely attuned to an East African setting, which also implies some change in the narratives. So, so the play is set in an East African context, but for instance, just, just to give an example, uh, in The Merchant of Venice, uh, the, the context is uh, uh, a Muslim context governed by the Sunni law. So Jessica, Shylock's daughter, she does not convert to Christianity, but mm-hmm. to um, Islam. Um, and you have a text which cannot be compared in almost in any way to the Shakespearean texts, as they are also written kind of poetry. Um, and then you have extensive cuttings, you have relocation of uh, uh, scenes. So maybe the author thought, the Warwick, I mean, the translator, thought that one scene could be fitting more in another part. And then he was literally doing whatever he wanted with the Shakespearean text <laughs> and transforming it to be as most historical as possible. But after this, after the 70s, we have, as you say, kind of a gap. And then we go to the to the beginning of the well the first decade of the 2000s, and I have to say that this is a common trend in Swahili in the history of uh, uh, translated literature into Swahili. So it is not only that after the 70s Shakespeare um, is not anymore the focus of translation activities. Um, but I have to say that after independence, many so-called uh, Western authors were translated um, in abundance. After the 17th, we have a change of source authors, source texts, and source um, and geographical context from which to draw. So we have more texts translated from other African authors, China and like. So this is not a prerogative of Shakespeare not to be translated anymore. But then we have this gap. And then we, uh, at the beginning of the 2000, then we have some uh, translation activity 
from the diaspora, let's say. So we have Mlenge Fanuel Ngendi. And that's very interesting because he is translating King Lear into, into Swahili. And then in 2012, we also have another translation uh, by uh, Professor Iribe Mwangi, a colleague of Professor Kimani, and uh, Mukwana, who translated uh, Othello. They did this translation, what they say in the foreword to the text, kind of in the deliberate attempt to fill a gap in the in the introduction to the text, they say um, they find they found it ironic that none of the Shakespearean texts that feature um, a black character was trans, was ever ever translated into Swahili. So they decided to fill this gap and translate Othello. If I could ask you both a final question, this is an unfair summary question, but it maybe ties in with a couple of things that, that you've both mentioned. So we know that the, the, the translating Shakespeare or the appearance of translations of Shakespeare into a certain language is not always an accurate barometer of the, let's call it the health or the strength of that language, whether that is understood in terms of the number of speakers or uh, its economic and political status, or I suppose inevitably primarily whether it's used as a language of learning and teaching. So we know that there's not a clear correlation between translations of Shakespeare uh, and and those questions around the status of a language. There are certain moments very clearly when translations of Shakespeare can contribute to that status. Uh, then we, as we've seen, the narrative that you've given, it can, can come and go. But sometimes the absence of Shakespeare is a different kind of barometer of the health of production, literary or, or cultural or other forms of production in a language as well. And so it seems to me from what you've described, we have an interesting combination when it comes to Shakespeare and Kiswahili, because on the one hand, we, as we, we've seen with your descriptions of what happened through Nurede and, and Mushi in particular, translating Shakespeare enabled new creative practice in the language, particularly around blank verse. That in itself was also a process of recuperation, maybe a recovery of heritage, if one's thinking about Kimani's point about the connection to music. So there's a sense in which the moment, that moment of translating Shakespeare both enables new practice, but also recuperates uh, existing forms of creative production. But there's always that other side to it when it comes to translating Shakespeare, which I guess links to Serena's opening comment about nostalgia and colonial nostalgia in particular. Would you say that that, that strand to sh translating Shakespeare, which I think is there in, in so many post-colonial contexts, has that occurred when it comes to Kiswahili as well? You know, from the external perspective, Shakespeare always, and when I say external, I suppose what I actually mean is global north and specifically English or British. Shakespeare becomes a, a way of understanding or reducing perhaps the complexities of certain uh, African political, cultural, linguistic contexts. You know, Shakespeare has the kind of narrowing effect. But I, sp I suppose if we if we set aside that that global north perspective and we think about ourselves in terms of the global south, what has the effect been of translating Shakespeare into Swahili for people in Kenya and Tanzania and other East African countries in terms of their perception of their relationship with this former colonial presence? So for me, um, that two ways of responding to that question. Um, the first way is to say that when Mabepari wa Venisi, uh, the merchant of Venice, or Julius Kaisari uh, find, when the two plays find their way into Kiswahili, 
they actually become part of Kiswahili literature. Mm -hmm. And uh, our reading of the plays, um, our reading is so contextualized that we do not see this as an extension of a British, you know, a philosophy, uh, but rather uh, we own it. So the parameter, the point of reference, actually, is Swahili literature. And we did the same with uh, Government Inspector, you know, uh, Gogol's play uh, is part of Swahili literature, you know, um, and, and we have examined it in Kenyan schools as part of Swahili literature. So I think that the incorporation of, um, you know, Shakespeare into Kiswahili and its complete immersion into, uh, into our literature means then that its reading as part of British, you know, perpetuation of its ideas and soft power and so on gets quite minimized in our context. So we, we, we interpret it mm. as part of our experience. Um, and I think that is part of the reason why Nyerere, for example, in his revised edition, did quite a bit of adaptation, not just of the naming, but also of situatedness of the, of the, of the play. I know in my discussion with um, some people, of course, they do not see uh, trans translated texts as part of local literature. They still want to use the... Um, prism of the North, uh, which uh, is very hesitant to accept uh, works written in English, uh, such as uh, Kongi's Harvest, as part of English literature, uh, 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 even when it is originated in, in, in English. Um, in our case, I think, it is, I think the process of transcreation uh, becomes similar to production, so you are producing a work. Mm -hmm. You are actually producing a new work. Um, and, and, and so, um, at least in, the, in, in, in my case, and I think in the case of quite a few other people, um, we see this as part of our literature um, and, and, and part of the repertoire of the literature mm -hmm. that we work with, uh, with the minimal reference to Shakespeare himself um, and more of reference to the content uh, that we have at, at our disposal. So that, uh, that's the way I would I would respond to this, um, to that very, very complex question, Chris. It is a very complex question. And I do agree with what Professor Kimani is saying um, in terms of, um, if I think about how the Swahili have a very long history of welcoming um, narratives from the outside, and a very long history of being porous and to create a new uh, from what comes from the outside. And also, if I think about Swahili classical poetry, which drew a lot on um, Arabic uh, narratives and stories with a final aim to create something absolutely local and localized. So I also see this, um, actually, this potential um, that other African countries experience, for instance, with Shakespeare, how they um, do with Shakespeare many, well, I don't want to say creative things because I don't want to give the impression that um, there cannot be creativity without Shakespeare, which is not the case. Um, but to, yeah, also to play with that 
and in the end yeah to to create something to create something new and to 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 play with uh, also with exaggeration or um, with adaptation and with rewriting and any sort of reuse for local purposes i see a lot of potential uh, as the uh, the example of the the, the Wanawake Waheriwa Windsor, the merry wives of Windsor, um, is an example to it. No, this um, exuberance of creativity using and reusing Shakespeare. On on the other hand, of course, the place of Shakespeare has put um, a huge debate over history, well into the nineties. Um, and the relationship between uh, English literature and Shakespeare with Swahili literature. But the point of being able to include in its own canon something from abroad um, makes me see that there is this uh, potential, this openness and the potential of, um, how to say, Pacific coexistence. I like that phrase. It feels like a manifesto, Pacific coexistence. Languages and cultures existing in peaceful and creative cooperation? That makes me think of Shoma Jozi. That's Shoma Jozi's Jamani, signaling the end of part two of Kiswahili Shakespeare's and episode two of Shake the Sword. Thanks for listening. Now, at the end of our first episode, I promised you that I would explain why this podcast is called Shake the Sword, and indeed, where the Tsikinyashaka Center gets its name. To do that, I'll have to tell you a tale. You've heard us mention Sol Plyke, the journalist, politician, novelist, historian, polymath, who's widely recognized as producing the first published translations of Shakespeare into an African language. For Plyke, this aspect of his work was an important component of his advocacy for the language of Setswana and the cultural heritage of the Botswana peoples. He actually translated a handful of the plays, although sadly only two of these translations have survived. A version of the Comedy of Errors, Di Posho Posho, published in 1930, and Julius Caesar, or Dinchoncho Tsabo Juliuse Kesara, published in 1937, five years after Plyke's death. But some two decades before this, Plyke had written a short essay for the 1916 volume A Book of Homage to Shakespeare, in which he gave an account of his relationship with Shakespeare's plays that gestures towards an already existing tradition of translation and appropriation in South Africa. Plyke describes visiting the chief's court at Mafeking and being asked for the name of, quote, the white man who spoke so well. One of the chieftains replies on Plyke's behalf, William Tsikinyashaka. Plyke explains that this is a reference to William Shake the Sword, a translation that is, he notes, more free than literal. The Book of Homage, published at the height of the First World War, is, of course, bound up in British colonialism and in competing European nationalisms. Yet it is also a significant manifestation of global Shakespeare and of multilingual Shakespeare's, arguably even foreshadowing the advent of post-colonial Shakespeare's. Its paradoxes and those of a figure like Sol Plyke remind us to approach multilingualism and transnationalism in Shakespeare studies with critical rigor. Hence, the Tsikinyashaka Center. And hence also, shake the sword. We hope to shake things up a bit when it comes to perceptions about Shakespeare and translation, and to emphasize freedom over literalism. In our next episode, we'll be talking about Nigerian Shakespeare's. You've been listening to Shake the Sword, 
produced by the Tsikinia Shaka Center. The TCC is a research unit in the School of Literature, Language and Media at the University of the Witwatersrand. Our work is supported by a range of funders and partners, including Legacy Underwriting Managers, the National Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Shakespeare Society of Southern Africa. Visit our website or find us on Facebook and Twitter.